I'd remind you of the title of our series that we've been going through for the past few months. We are in part 30 of our series. We spent 30 weeks looking at the gospel in the life of the church. We've been looking at how it is that the gospel shapes the life of the church, this community of faith, a body of believers who comes together under the banner of Jesus Christ, receiving the words of the gospel, the words of the Lord, and how that word, how that gospel, how that good news of Jesus Christ and his work shapes us, shapes everything we do, how it organizes us, how it informs how we administrate things in the church, how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of faith as Paul uh, exhorts Timothy to teach the church. As a people are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're transformed, they're changed. The gospel changes us. And you better believe as people are changed, well, it changes a church. It changes what we do as a church. It changes our gathering. It changes how we relate to one another as a community of believers. And as we begin our study in the last of these letters, we are going to be impressed yet again as we have been going through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy with the reality of this inseparable link between belief and behavior, between our creeds and our conduct and our devotion and our deeds. You cannot separate them. What you believe, what you confess... It's going to inform how you live that out. It's going to inform your conduct. And we're going to see once again, even though this is a letter written to a leader of a church, an apostolic delegate, as we study, we will see yet again the enormous relevance that, that this word has for us today as 21st century believers in the midst of a crooked, perverse, and increasingly immoral culture. Where people facing threats from without, facing threats from within as well. So we're going to find the message of Titus to be extremely relevant and timely for us, given our current context and given our ongoing need for growth in godliness. Let's turn to the word of the Lord. We'll read the first four verses of this letter to Titus. Hear the words of the living God. Paul a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted By the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. These are the words of the Lord. We'd like to take just a few moments, give us a brief introduction to this letter. There's a lot of similarities between the other two pastoral letters though there are some uh, new and different exhortations here for us. Uh, but we know that this letter, like First and Second Timothy, were written by the Apostle of the Lord, Paul. We know that because, well, he tells us, doesn't he? He tells us right there, the first word in our letter, it's Paul. And while two-thirds of the New Testament books 
uh, are written by this great apostle of the Lord, they're generally written to a particular church. Church in Galatia, the church at Corinth, the church at Ephesus. But this, like the other two pastoral letters, are written to an individual, a minister, a leader in the church, one of Paul's uh, faithful uh, apostolic delegates. Uh, and this one happens to be Titus, whom he calls a true child in a common faith. What do we know about Titus? Well, he's mentioned in a, in a few of his letters, namely Galatians and his second letter uh, to the church at Corinth. So we know he's one of Paul's ministry companions. He traveled with Paul. He ministered alongside Paul. We know he was with him at Corinth at some point. We know he went back to Corinth. In the letter to Galatians, we know that he was with Paul and Barnabas when he made his way up to Jerusalem to to confront the apostles there and to give uh, basically a ministry report, an accounting of what the Lord had been doing with him. So we know he was someone who was close to Paul. He was one of his fellow workers and partners. He calls him that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So we know he was with him, him at some point in his early missionary journeys before his first imprisonment, where Paul was under house arrest that you find there at the end of Acts. But what we don't find in the book of Acts is Titus mentioned anywhere. His name just doesn't appear there. And you'd think, well, this was one of his traveling companions. Why isn't his name written there? And so New Testament scholars, you know, they speculate a lot of different reasons. It could be that he's, he actually is mentioned somewhere in Acts, but maybe under a different name. Okay, this is his Greek name. Maybe there was a variation of that name that we're unaware of. And maybe he is mentioned there, uh, but we don't know. Some New Testament uh, scholars seem to think that he was related to Luke, who is the writer of the book of Acts, who chronicles the works of the Holy Spirit uh, through the early church and through the work of the apostle. And we know that Luke doesn't even mention himself in the book of Acts. So maybe because he was related to Luke, maybe his brother, um, and he just did in, some, in just an act of humility, right, doesn't mention their names. Frankly, we don't know. We do know that he was there. And what we do know about Titus is that he was Greek. In Galatians, he tells us that. Paul, writing and giving an account of something that was happening there uh, with the uh, Jewish sympathizers who were trying to distort the gospel and introduce some of the works of the law back then. He references Titus there that he had brought along with him, and he mentions that he was Greek by birth. So we do know that about him. Because he calls him a true child in the faith, we can surmise that he came to faith under the ministry of the apostle. And that's why he calls him a spiritual son, just like he did with Timothy. He calls him his spiritual son in the faith, his true child uh, in a common faith. That phrase is, is very particular because Titus was Greek. And what do we know about Paul? He was a Jew. And he's expressing there that now Jew and Gentile, right? Paul and, and both Titus share in this common faith. They've both been united in Christ Jesus because of the work of Jesus Christ, right? All, all uh, uh, ethnic distinctions are leveled in Christ Jesus. They are one in him and they share this common faith. That which used to separate Jew and Gentile no longer does. They share this common faith in Jesus Christ through Paul's preaching of the gospel, now, when you read Titus, you don't get that same sense of fatherly affection that we find in Paul's writings to Timothy. 
I mean, there's some deep expressions of Paul's love for Timothy there, his affection for Timothy, his, his thoughts about Timothy, especially in that second letter where we know Paul's writing near the end of his life, and he expresses that affection to Timothy in very profound ways. We don't have that same feel here, but that doesn't diminish the reality that he considered Titus a true child in the faith. We see a fatherly concern in this letter because Titus has a very special mission here on behalf of the apostle. There's things he has to do. And the fact that he's left there uh, in, in this island state of, of, of Crete means that he was a very valuable member of Paul's ministry team. And he was a child uh, in the faith. But it seems like Titus had a different constitutional makeup than that of Timothy. We, we studied about Timothy in 1 Timothy. We know that he was timid. There was something going on with him, and, and, and Paul had to reassure him, right? To stand firm, to take courage, to hold fast. God hasn't given you a spirit to fear, right? But we know also that he was considered young, right? There was uh, an aspect about him. He was probably in his mid-30s or so, and by standards in those days, he was considered young. And that may have been looked down upon by older people who may not have seen uh, his ministry there as authoritative and may not have been able to receive from him. And we know that he suffered some type of physical affliction, uh, which then caused the apostle to remind him, hey, you know, don't just do a name it and claim it thing here. Take a little wine, right, to help you with your little stomachal ailments, right, with which now we know wine is something we can drink, right? So if you come from a Baptist background and you're like, oh, wine is of the devil, well, you have to contend with that. We don't get drunk on wine. We know that is sin, right? But, but we don't get an indication here that Paul had these same kind of concerns with Titus. We don't really know his age. Um, probably younger than the apostle, maybe a little bit older than Timothy. We really don't have more, much more information about that. But he seems to have been highly trusted by Paul. In fact, if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you see that Paul trusted Titus with some very delicate matters concerning the church, concerning a very special offering, and the way Titus was instrumental uh, in mobilizing the Corinthians to give generously uh, to the work, especially to the Jewish believers uh, there in Jerusalem who were uh, undergoing severe famine and poverty during that time. It's, it's beautiful um, words that Paul uses concerning Titus there. And then we know at the end of 2 Timothy, right, in the very last instructions that's given to Titus where he says, hey, I'm kind of, I'm alone here. Only Luke is with me, but he mentions Titus. <clears throat> and he says, Titus has left for Dalmatia. So he had moved from this ministry, ministry ground to another. Uh, there were probably others in between the writing of this letter and that final words that we have in 2 Timothy. Uh, so he was sent out by Paul to many different places as his delegate um, to, to preach the gospel and to do the work similar to what he was called to do here. As to the uh, date, the dating of this letter, when was it written? Um, probably written around the same time as 1 Timothy. Okay? In the instructions, Paul is given uh, these believers here. We know it takes place after his third missionary journey, after being released from house arrest, and certainly before 2 Timothy, as that is the last of the apostles' recorded letters. So sometime 
between early to mid-60s A.D., okay, is the writing of this letter. Um, it's probably during what's considered Paul's fourth missionary journey. Not mentioned in Acts, not recorded there by Luke, uh, but history recounts the reality that he was released from that uh, house arrest and he continued to preach the gospel. Paul even writes in Romans that it was his intention to go take the gospel to Spain, right? So the gospel was to go out further from where he was at, taking it from Asia Minor, then to the Iberian uh, Peninsula. We know that was his every intention. And some early church historians actually say that that is exactly what he did. He took the gospel as far as Spain. Clement, the bishop of Rome, writing in his letter, says exactly that, that Paul, the apostle of the Lord, again, it's not in scripture, but um, that is what history tells us. Where he wrote this letter from, again, we don't know, okay? We know that at some point he was in Crete and he left Crete, okay? And that's why Titus is left there. And so he was possibly in or near Nicopolis. At the end of Titus, you read the last, now I, I want to encourage you to read Titus over and over again. It's two pages in your Bible, right? Well, I've everybody, it's two pages. How long does it take you to read that? No time at all. You can read Titus hundreds of times in the coming weeks. So I want to encourage you to help you internalize its message and know it intimately. At the end of it, uh, he tells Titus to go find him in Nicopolis. This is in western Greece, okay, uh, probably a couple hundred miles from Crete uh, by boat. And that's where he can find him because Paul's going to be spending the winter there. Okay, so probably he was in or near Nicopolis in western Greece when he wrote this particular letter. So that's about all we can know because Paul just doesn't uh, tell us in his letter here. And in verse 5 tells us Titus's marching orders. Slightly different than Timothy's. Timothy was in Ephesus. Here he's told to what? Remain in Crete. This is why I left you in Crete, he says in verse 5, so that you might put what remained into order. That was Titus's reason for being in Crete. He had traveled with the apostle to bring the gospel to this island, preach the gospel. Believers came to the faith, and what happened? Churches were started in all different towns throughout Crete. And the apostle now is moving on, and Titus is left with the charge, like Timothy was at Ephesus now, to organize the church, to put what what Paul had started into order and to finish that particular work. And we'll talk more about that as the weeks go on here. Now, Titus was probably based in, uh, near the provincial capital of Gorton there in Greece. Okay? Greece is in the Mediterranean Sea. And there's important travel ports throughout it. Crete was a very important uh, time. If you know anything about the Minoan culture, this is where it was established. Uh, rich in culture. Rich in paganism, rich in steeped in a culture of Greek mythology and pagan gods and pagan worship. But he was probably near the capital city there. It makes sense to that be the base of operations uh, for the ministry that Paul started there. Because it was an important town and from there he could go. Now, there was a lot of challenges that Titus had there in Crete. Number one, as I already said, to establish the churches there and to edify the saints that were there he encountered a lot of opposition uh, from the culture of its time. And as we study this in the coming weeks, you'll see how much of it relates to our present-day culture today. 
But Paul tells them right at the beginning of the letter, here's what I want you to do. I want you to establish leadership in the church. I want you to establish, to ordain, to set into place elders. The same thing he told Timothy. And then he's going to follow up and tell them why. Because of false teaching and false teachers. There has to be godly leadership in place with sound doctrine that will hold to apostolic teaching and scripture because of what the church was facing in its time there. He was also to instruct the believers in how their faith works, how it works itself out in life, in all of life, in the practice of the church, and how believers are to conduct themselves in the church of Jesus Christ. Why? Because how we live this life is going to demonstrate whether this faith is authentic, whether this is the real deal, right? Genuine faith is going to work itself out in the good works of the faith. Our faith is going to bear fruit of our salvation. One of the main themes you're going to see in this letter is how the gospel transforms lives uh, and how it transforms relationships. Plenty of instructions on the interactions of relationships in the church are going to be found in this brief letter. No easy task for Titus. These fledgling churches were in the midst of this culture deeply entrenched and shaped by Greek mythology. So what you had, and like what was happening in a lot of the other churches, was this ugly syncretism, right? Where people were coming to faith in Jesus Christ, but they still had all of these, you know, uh, spiritual beliefs and practices, and they're, again, this false uh, worship of, of these, these Greek gods, and they just want to kind of blend all those things together in their faith. So Titus had his work cut out for him here. Uh, interesting thing uh, about Crete was that that island claimed itself as the birthplace of Zeus. And, and many of them believe that most of the gods of the Greek pantheon were actually born in Crete. You can imagine the, the elitism, right, of the people there and the, the arrogance and pride they must have had in their culture, right? After all, this is where the gods were born. It shaped their worship. It shaped everything they did there. Crete was a sacred place for the worship of their gods. So his task was not going to be easy because now he was going to have to say, look, your understanding of the Christian God uh, and all these other things is kind of jacked up and let's fix that, okay? Not an easy task. Additional challenge for Titus would be that this was a, a, an extremely mountainous island, 3,200 plus square miles, Okay? Not easy for him to move around from town to town. So he had logistical challenges. He had theological challenges. He had opposition from pagan worshipers and uh, Jewish sympathizers and having to teach with all of the distortions of the gospel there. Uh, Eusebius, uh, who was the bishop of Caesarea, uh, was, is one of the early church historians. And he wrote in the 4th century that at some point, Titus went back to Crete later on in life, and he actually became the first bishop of, over the churches there in Crete, and he died in Crete of a very old age. That's about all we know from church history concerning the life of this important figure and this letter which bears his name. So now let's look at these four verses here, which is actually one of the longest of Paul's greetings in some of his letters there. And it is packed with a lot of stuff. It takes you just a couple seconds to read through it, uh, and we could actually spend weeks on it, but we're not. 
I fear not. We're not, we're not, we're not going to do that. We're, but we will re- revisit some of these things throughout here. Let's look at verse 1 there. <clears throat> Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is a very standard customary greeting or a variation of one that we find in Paul's letters. And right off the bat, like he does in many of his letters, he identifies himself as a servant of the Lord, a slave of the Lord. Now, this theology of of servanthood, uh, Paul fleshes out in a lot of his letters. Namely, in Romans chapter 6, he writes about how we were slaves of sin. We were dead in our trespass and sins, enslaved to our sin. Sin was our master. But what did Christ do? He freed us from our slavery to sin. And now we're slaves of righteousness. We're his slaves. We're not, our, we're not on our own. It's not like he freed us from our sin and we can be autonomous individuals out there. No, you're always going to be a slave to somebody. Either to sin as your master or to the Lord who ransomed you and purchased you in the incalculably great price of his blood. His precious blood shed to ransom us from that stranglehold that sin had over us. Okay? So he goes, I'm a slave. I'm a slave of God. We all are that. In Romans chapter 6, read that. Paul was Christ's slave. He was the Lord's bondservant. He committed his life in complete service to the Lord. From the moment he got knocked off his horse, had this revelation of Jesus Christ that forever changed the trajectory of his life, Paul spent himself for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the Lord, which was his master. But he also writes, once again, reminding those who would hear this letter. Again, this isn't for Titus's benefit. Titus knows he's an apostle. Not a surprise. But he identifies himself, once again, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why does he continually do that? Well, there were those who would say, how can you be an apostle? You are not one of the original 12. And as we know, Paul reminds us in several of his letters, he wasn't called by man. He wasn't appointed by man. He was appointed by Jesus Christ himself. Okay? And not only that, we know that it was the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the risen, risen and ascended Lord, who personally taught and instructed Paul. So he was like the twelve, as an eyewitness of Jesus, but very distinct from the twelve. In fact, Paul calls himself one untimely born. Because he wasn't like them. He, he wasn't there when they were personally face to face with Jesus Christ and living with Jesus and, and during that whole ministry of Jesus. But he was nonetheless called by Jesus Christ himself who personally revealed himself to him. And Paul considered himself the least of the apostles because he persecuted believers. Because he actually opposed the message. He didn't embrace it right away. He opposed it. He persecuted believers. He imprisoned them. He beat them. Some were put to death at his hands. But the Lord has a special purpose concerning Paul. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, if you recall, he celebrates the, the riches of God's mercy and grace and how God saved him. He considered himself the chief of sinners because of how he hated the message and hated Christ and hated uh, his people. He was an opponent of the faith. But then he says God saved him. And he says, 
God saved me to be an example to everyone. That if God could save someone like me, the foremost, the chief of sinners, then he can save anyone. If God could rescue me, a blasphemer, an opponent, no one is beyond the reach of God's arm of salvation. Right? That's good news. He says, look at me. Look what God did with me. Look how he could save me. He can save uh, anyone. God is rich in mercy. And this was Paul's perspective. That's why he could say, I'm a servant of the Lord. I'm his bondservant. And I'm his apostle. And that brief introduction not only reminds us of the great mercy and grace in rescuing Paul, and now he's his servant, but that he is an apostle reminds us of the authoritative nature of this letter. This is the word of the Lord. These are God's words to us. Written, yes, to an individual. Read to a particular people there in Crete. With particular information and instruction concerning them. But it's nonetheless for us. It is scripture. So we receive it. Right? And we know it's for every believer. And it's also binding on every Christian life. Because they are the words of God. Now let's look at what he continues to write here. He says that he's a servant and an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. This brief statement here sums up the apostle's aim and purpose for the apostolic ministry to which he was called. It's a threefold purpose that he unveils here. And it all has to do with the faith the godliness and the hope of God's elect. The faith, the godliness, and the hope of God's elect. First, the faith of God's elect. Think about this. All of his labor, all of his preaching, all of his serving, all of his teaching, his blood, sweat, and tears is aimed at the saving faith of God's elect. Why did he preach so fervently? Why was he so fearless in taking the gospel everywhere? The apostles, many of them huddled up in Jerusalem. And he's like, nope, I got to get out there. He's, he's preaching the gospel everywhere. Jews and Jeff, he'd start in the synagogue. And when they didn't want to listen, he said, I'm taking the message to the Gentiles. And in the face of all opposition and persecution and the times he was beaten and nearly stoned to death and left for dead. He continued to preach and proclaim this gospel. Why? It was all with the aim of bringing all those whom God has chosen to saving faith. It's for the sake of God's elect. The sake of the faith. What does he do? He preaches the gospel indiscriminately everywhere he goes. Jews, Gentiles, pagans, barbarians. It didn't didn't matter if they were, you uh, you know, they didn't even understand his language. He probably had translators. Or those with the gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues. I don't know. We don't have all that information there. But we know, took the gospel to everyone. Preached the gospel to everyone. Didn't withhold it. Didn't prejudge. Oh, those people aren't going to, they're not going to want to hear this message. He knew most of the Jews were not going to hear the message. Nevertheless, where, where was he found on the Sabbath? Preaching and teaching in the synagogue. Right? Proclaiming the risen Christ uh, to them. Right? Uh, so this is what he does. Okay? Why? He had utter confidence that as he proclaimed the gospel, those whom God had chosen, those whom God had appointed to eternal life would respond with faith. In Romans chapter 10, 
He teaches us here that salvation comes through the preaching of the gospel message. It is the means God has ordained for people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Let's just read this passage, verses 12 through 17. We don't have time to teach through all of this, but much this is self-explanatory. He writes, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. Again, this is that indiscriminate preaching of the gospel. It is the message is to all, right? And bestowing his riches on all who then call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the way. This is the way it's always been. This is how God has ordained for people to trust Christ. What do they need to do? Well, they need to believe. And how are they going to believe? Well, first they have to hear the gospel message. And who are they going to hear that from? From God's messengers. From those who are herald. The sent ones. Not just the apostles. That word apostle means sent. But we're all sent people. Every single one of us are to take the message, are to preach the message to everyone without distinction. That message goes out. Those who are called by God will be able to call on God. That's the way it works, right? So it requires someone preaching the message. Now, important, it's not Paul's preaching that is the source of the hearer's faith. We don't get that twisted up. This is not a work that produces faith in people. It is the means God ordains people come to faith. God is the source of people's faith. Okay? God is the source of that. God's elections is the ground. His choosing is the ground of the hearer's faith. It's not just Paul preaching it now that produces faith. They hear and through the regenerating work of the Spirit, they can express faith and belief and confidence and trust in all that Jesus Christ has done for them. Right? So that's the source. But because of God's electing love, those who hear will exercise faith. So he's telling us here, this is my primary, God. This is my primary uh, mission. This is my purpose. This is the aim of apostolic ministry. It's for the sake of God's elect. And it's also, again, the knowledge uh, of God's election. This, this is important because this is, this is one of those areas where people get so twisted up, you know. We believe and hold to God's sovereignty and salvation. We go, well, then what's the purpose of evangelism? But what Paul teaches us here, none of it is a disincentive to preaching the gospel and evangelism. On the contrary, it's confidence for preaching and evangelism. Why? Well, if God's appointed people unto eternal life and salvation, and the means he ordained is for us to be his herald and take the message out, then we can do that with confidence that some will respond. How miserable if it's on me, though, for them to respond. If it's up to me to be the persuasive factor to engender faith and belief in the heart of an individual that God's word says is dead in their trespass and sins, and unless God opens the eyes and opens the ears, they won't hear. 
They can't believe. They can't repent. They can't have faith. But this is confidence for that. Um, And that's chapter 18. There's a beautiful narrative there. Luke recounts how Paul was opposed uh, by the Jews in his preaching at Corinth. So he's preaching there and the Jews just raise up opposition, create a a ruckus. uh, And the Lord encourages Paul in a vision. Okay, And he tells him, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Can you imagine the encouragement for Paul? It's like, I don't know, maybe he needed it in that moment. Maybe he was feeling like, Lord, everyone's opposing the message. I mean, like, I'm not getting through. I'm not breaking through. And I'm going to take the message to the Gentiles there in Corinth. And Paul is encouraged by the Lord in a vision of the night. I don't know how it happened. Maybe you just saw in his mind. Maybe we have no idea, but it was some vision. And the Lord speaks to him. Don't be afraid. I've got people here. My people are here. Now, they hadn't manifested yet, but they're there. They're there. What is that an example of for us, right? We're not apostles, but like I said, we're, we are sent. We're sent in the world to proclaim the good news. We preach the gospel indiscriminately. We don't make judgments of who might or might not receive the message. But we know, as Paul has already stated, there people will come to faith because no one is not only just beyond the ability of the Lord to save them, but the Lord has called people to be saved. He has chosen people, which we'll look at in a moment, from eternity past, right? And so what? If we trust that God has people in this city who are his people, and we must preach the gospel to everyone because some of them are God's elect, we know that some will respond with faith. That's confidence. That's confidence. Why we should not be afraid. Are you going to get no's? 100%. You're going to get no's. Are you going to get some opposition and pushback? Sure, you are. But guess what? You indiscriminately scatter the seed. God's people will respond. Why? And you have the privilege now of being the one who brought that message to them. They heard the gospel message. The call went out. The effectual call. And they respond in faith. That's a beautiful thing. And that's Paul's confidence. So he goes, you know what? This is what my apostleship's for. This is the aim of my apostleship. For the sake, for the saving faith of God's elect. But it's not just for the saving faith. Because once they come to faith in Jesus Christ, what's next? Their growth in the faith. They have to grow up in the faith. They have to mature in the faith. And that's the second aim. It is not just for the saving faith uh, of God's elect, but what? The knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. It's not just the start of the faith that's important, but their continuance in the faith. They're maturing in the faith. And he says, here's what's necessary for that. The knowledge of the truth. That does what? Leads to godliness. Leads to godliness. God's truth, the knowledge of God's truth, is sanctifying truth. Having knowledge of the truth leads us to godliness because it transforms us. Now, his aim here is not just in filling the believers with information in their head. It's not just getting head knowledge here, right? It's not just even about believing the right things, though that is critical. What Paul knew is that the word of God working in the people of God is going to produce the holiness of God in their lives. It is the way it works. 
if you possess genuine saving faith, that faith will be authenticated by the godliness it produces in your life. No godliness invalidates the very thing you're claiming to be true. Godliness, in a way, authenticates truth. It reflects that the truth is actually true. So genuine faith, brothers and sisters, bears the fruit of godliness. It is inseparable from it. That's why we have that line in James that always trips people up. Faith without works is dead. Well, he's not saying faith plus works is what's necessary for salvation. What he's saying is you're not saved by works, but if you are saved by faith, it's going to play itself out and work its way out in the good works of the gospel. In the good works of the faith, your life is producing the fruit that bears to the truth and authenticates the truth that you profess and believe. Direct correlation between our growing in the knowledge of the truth and our growth in godliness. We already have seen that in Titus, and we're, in, in Timothy, and we're going to see it again in Titus. The false teaching of the false teachers does not produce godliness. What did it produce? Paul says it's corrupt behavior. More and more ungodliness. That's what false teaching produces. Why? Because it doesn't promote godliness. It promotes the pursuing of your own selfish uh, passions and desires. But the truth of God will lead to God, right? And we can evaluate teaching by that standard. Does it promote godliness? If you hear a teaching out there that does not promote growth and godliness, you can reject that. That's it. No further evaluation is this. Does it promote godliness? Does it promote holiness? Does it promote godly living? If it doesn't, you can reject it. The more we grow in our knowledge of the gospel, the more we grow in the knowledge of what Christ has done for us, the more we grow in our knowledge of God and His Word, what is that going to produce? Holiness and godliness. Our love for God grows. We want to live for Him and please please Him. Again, we know... We're not saved by that. But it's the fruit of genuine faith and salvation. Titus chapter 2. We're going to see Paul write. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Look what he writes there. Grace saves us and grace trains us for godliness. It produces it. So sound doctrine promotes godly conduct. Genuine saving faith produces and leads us to growing godliness. And that was one of Paul's chief aims in ministry. It was his all-consuming passion and desire for people to grow up in the Lord. To mature in their faith in Christ. It pained him so much. He writes in Galatians chapter 4, My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He so wanted them to be conformed to Christ, to grow up into Christ who is the head of the church, to grow in godliness. He says it feels like labor pains. I mean, the anguish of childbirth, so much so I want you to grow up. I want you to just move from, from that saving faith you have to really understanding and growing in your knowledge of the truth that will lead to growing Godliness and obedience. So important. But here's the third aim of 
the apostolic ministry to, to which the Lord had called Paul. That was to encourage hope in the people of God. He says this is all in verse 2. In hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. This is his third aim. Engendering and encouraging hope in the people of God. Why? Because that hope, that hope of eternal life is a motivating factor for our faith and a motivating factor for our growth and godliness. Saving faith, sanctifying truth is going to lead to greater confidence in the hope to which all of us have been called to. Paul wanted them to keep their eyes on the prize in hope of eternal life. Not our kind of hope, but biblical hope. Certain, sure hope. Again, like we said in 2 Timothy, all of this is worth it in light of the hope of eternal life, in light of what God has promised all of us. Our saving faith and our sanctifying truth rests on the firm foundation upon which our hope is placed. And that firm foundation is Christ. And that firm foundation is the very promises of God concerning this eternal life. That's why we can have confidence. Look at this threefold guarantee that we've been given by God of this eternal life. Don't dismiss these phrases here like Paul's just trying to be cute in his greeting over here. With these short introductory remarks. He is addressing something very specific. And he's addressing, as we're going to see in this letter, something specific and unique to the ministry conditions on the ground in Crete. But this is a threefold guarantee. First, he says... Who promised this eternal life? God promised it. God promised it. When did he promise it? When did he promise it? It's right there. Before the ages began. Let that sink in for a moment. That means if it was before the ages again began, that means it was before you and I were here. Before any of these people were here, before anything was here, before anything was made, before the ages began. This is an eternal decree God made. This is the eternal purposes and plan of God that is now unfolded in time, but began before time. And we can't even wrap our minds around something like that. But because it's an eternal decree of God, what do we know? If God has decreed it, if God has promised it, it will surely come to pass. This is why it's a guarantee. This is why this is a hope, a firm foundation for our faith, for saving faith. His eternal plans, His purposes concerning His people can never be thwarted or subverted. It happens. Has happened, is happening, will happen, will never be overturned. Second, he says, God who made this promise cannot lie. He cannot lie. Now, why does he mention that? Well, we're going to read here in chapter 2, Paul writes something very profound, quoting one of uh, the prophets, a Cretan prophet, talking about his own people. He says, hey, this is the testimony of one of their prophets. All Cretans, all Cretans are lazy, 
They're liars and they're gluttons. And he says, he's 100% correct. He's right on, right? They were notorious liars. In fact, they immortalized their gods because they lied. Zeus was a liar, a manipulator, a deceiver, taking on the form of man to bed women left and right and deceiving them. And so they, man, they, they lauded all of these of their gods who were liars, and they were liars themselves. It's a really immoral culture, and we're going to talk about that more uh, as we go on here. But he says, our God is not like Zeus. Our God is not like those other gods who lie. God cannot lie. It is contrary to his nature. It is contrary to his character. He is the unlying God. So this God who cannot lie, he's the one who has promised eternal life. He can be trusted to fulfill everything he promised for his people. Isn't that encouraging for us? Everything God has promised concerning our salvation, concerning our future, our eternal life with him, in glory, at his return, he's promised it to us. He does not lie. He can be trusted to fulfill it. And third, he writes, God manifested this promise at an appointed time through the preaching of the gospel. Through his preaching, right? He was entrusted with this message. And what is that message of not showcasing the glorious promise of God of eternal life through Jesus Christ? The message now manifests, brings into time in human history the promise made before the ages began. And the implications of this statement are absolutely profound. The promise stretches back to eternity past, before the foundations of the world, before the ages began. And then it stretches to eternity future with the fulfillment of the promise at the consummation of the ages. Now, there isn't a sense that we have eternal life now. We have a foretaste of the blessings of eternal life now. But the whole fulfillment of that, the whole manifestation of what that eternal life is And what we have is going to come at the return of Christ. But this in-between period, what has God done? He has filled with the worldwide preaching of the gospel, spanning these two eternities from promise to fulfillment. This time is to showcase the grace of God in Jesus Christ. This time, through the preaching of the gospel, is to make that hope known is to proclaim that hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ that was promised in eternity past and it will be fulfilled at the return of our Lord in the future. Now, that promise was made before the ages began. To whom did God make that promise? To whom did God make His promise? It was a promise made from God the Father to God the Son. It was a promise made born out of the love of the Father for His Son in having a people prepared for Him, a bride that was promised to His Son. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every... This is Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him, look, 
before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now there's a whole lot there. But the reality here that he discloses here is that we were chosen in him. When? Before the foundation of the world. That's when we were chosen. Not in time, but before time. To what end? To be his sons and daughters. To be adopted as his sons through faith in Jesus Christ and through him. To be holy and blameless, right? To be a godly people, a righteous people. How? According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's how we've been brought in. God told his son, promised his son a people. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, 9, again, it's thundered. That it is God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. I don't fully understand that. I don't think any of us does. But God purposed this in himself. The Father to the Son. To redeem for for him a people. That would be his own. That would be his bride. And when you fast forward. To when we get this glimpse of the end. Of this eternity future. And John in his revelation on the Isle of Patmos. Sees, gets this glimpse of glory. After the return of Jesus Christ. And he sees the bride. He sees the people that, that, that Jesus ransomed for himself by his blood. Such a profound scene there. The bride of Christ, all of God's elect, clothed in fine linen, bright and pure, present at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then in Revelation chapter 1, 21, he sees the radiance of the bride of Christ. He calls her the New Jerusalem. He refers to her as the holy city. She's the temple of God. She is, he says, the wife of the Lamb. Clothed in the splendor of the glory of God. That promise was made in eternity past. From the Father to the Son. How could he not fulfill it? How could he not fulfill it? He promised him a people. So his salvation and his act of salvation could never fail. It can never fail. This endeavor of proclaiming the gospel is not a futile one. It's not a hopeless one. It's not one that we go out with, with trepidation because we think, well, just nobody wants to hear this. No, no, no. God promised before the ages began to give his son a bride, a people of his own possession. What do we do? We are invited into this, this privilege of proclaiming the good news and heralding and his people, they respond. They respond. So we have this scene in Revelation. We go, yes, that's it. And that's what we are part of today. These eternal purposes of God are now revealed in time to us. First manifested in the sending of his son in his incarnation. And now with our proclamation of the good news. When we preach the gospel, do you get this? Eternal life is manifested. When you preach the gospel, 
Eternal life is manifested because who is eternal life? Who is the grace of God? It's Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. And just as Paul was entrusted with this awesome responsibility, you and I have been entrusted with this awesome responsibility. The privilege of telling others of the hope of eternal life through the Son. And our confidence is that God has already chosen a bride for His Son. He already has a people prepared. So we proclaim the gospel. And those that are His will respond. And then as they respond in faith, what is our responsibility? To disciple them. To help them grow in godliness, grow in their knowledge of the truth, grow up into maturity in Christ, and then to encourage them with the hope of eternal life. Paul says, this is the aim of apostolic ministry. As I'm sent by the Lord, by direct command of God, for the sake of the saving faith of God's elect, for their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, and in hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie promised before the ages began and is now manifested in this preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ to which I've been entrusted. Closes this greeting with a benediction for Titus. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. These are his wishes for Titus. Grace and peace. They're customary uh, things and words and phrases that Paul uses in most of his introductions here. But it's grace and peace. What does Titus need for his ministry to flourish? Grace and peace. What is he going to need when he goes out there to try to establish leadership in the church and deal with false teachers and deal with all the, this, this crazy mashup of, 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 of the Christian faith and the Christian gospel and, and, and this, this cultural syncretism from Greek paganism? He's going to need grace and peace. The grace and peace that comes from God. And his ministry in Crete will only flourish Through that grace and peace. We cannot have grace. This undeserved merit and favor of God. And we cannot have true reconciling peace with God. Apart from Jesus Christ. We'll only flourish in life and ministry. With the grace and the peace that comes from God. If Paul's apostolic ministry is summed up. In this greeting. Calling us to saving faith. Stirring us to godliness through sanctifying truth and encouraging hope in us. I want to ask you, how is that working out in your life? Have you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in Him and Him alone for salvation? Is that knowledge of the truth stirring you and provoking you to love and good deeds, to godliness? And holiness, a desire to grow more and more and be conformed to the image of Christ. Are you encouraged by the hope of his return and that promise of eternal life? That is the aim of apostolic ministry. That is the aim of the preaching of the gospel to bring us to faith in Christ, to grow us in Christ, and to present us fully to him on that day. Is it motivating you to a life of greater confidence and trust in Jesus Christ? It's only possible through Christ. Who was made manifest at God's appointed time. Revealed to us in the gospel. And who causes to be made alive by the work of his spirit.
all by the grace of God. This is all of grace. This is not a burden that's imposed upon us. This is the grace of God. For we know that apart from it, we can't. Apart from Christ reconciling us to God through the shedding of his blood, you and I would remain enemies of God and remain under the wrath of God. But grace, but mercy. The Christian life starts with grace and peace and the Christian life continues with grace and peace. And it is only by the grace of God and the peace of God that we will experience the glories of the eternal life to come. Grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior will bring us all the way home.